So today is January 21st. That means if you had a New Year's resolution and you have kept it to the 21st, that researchers say that you might be one of the few who's developed a new habit and you're going to make, you could make it. So congratulations. It also means it's time to take your tree down if you haven't yet. So anybody still have a tree up? Okay, I'm not trying to shame you, but it's got to go. Um, and it's sad. I, you know, I got a little extra nostalgic this year taking down our tree, and then I had a kind of a debate, a discussion, a disagreement with my mother about the appropriate time to take down her tree, and so uh, cooler heads prevailed, and it's coming down this week. Um, so, it, you know, in the early weeks of January, you know, it is sad to see all the Christmas tree corpses around the neighborhood, frozen to the snowbank, and um, you know, these trees are the center point of people's, you know, most magical moments and family celebrations at Christmas, and that's where all the, you know, all the photos and the videos, that beautiful tree is in the background, and there's all the excitement is there under the tree, and there it sits in the snowbank, dead and useless. Days before, it was the most special thing in the house. Beautiful with the lights and the ornaments, perhaps old ornaments, even ones that were handmade by a child, ones that remind you of adventures or past Christmas memories, and with all the beauty, and it's a healthy tree, but it's cut off from its source, so it's from its source, so as beautiful as you dress it up, it's destined for the curb, dead, useless. We do not want to be Christmas tree Christians. Looking good on the outside, we got it all together, gathered in a beautiful building, everything seems fine, but dead on the inside. And here, Jesus teaches this exact lesson. This is the very same image. He says, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, if you're cut off from the source, it doesn't matter how good it looks on the outside, it is going to die and wither, and Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We must remain, abide, connected to Jesus. So today we're going to consider that, you know, what it, does it mean to abide in Jesus? Uh, what goes into this abiding, some different ways that we would abide, and then what, what comes of that? So that's what we're going to do today. Let's pray as we begin. So Father, we thank you for this opportunity to sing praise to you. Now as we look at your word, we pray that you would teach us. I pray, Lord, even that we might even leave here changed people with maybe a new perspective or a new attitude or a new um, priority because your spirit is at work changing us that we might even be transformed in this short time. And you're that good and you're that powerful. So we just invite that. Do your good work in us. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So what is abiding or remaining, the, the language here? We uh, can translate either way. I um, love this language, but in verse 4, you know, Jesus says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. I mean, this is the key to this whole section of Scripture where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. He's trying to explain to them what life is about and what it's going to look like for them to live um, in his absence and how, uh, how they can take heart and overcome the, the challenges of the world and live fruitfully and live this eternal and abundant life that he promised them. And to do that, you need to stay vitally connected to Jesus. You have to remain in Jesus and Jesus in you. And, and that is a different image than sometimes we can mistakenly think of our connection to God as more like plugging in and unplugging. 
You know, that like our, we look at like your cell phone. You, you plug it in overnight, and then in the morning you unplug it. It's all charged up. It does all good things during the day, and hopefully you make it to the end of the day to plug it back in and recharge. And that's not the image here. Especially if we see this kind of a gathering at church. It's like, okay, this is the time when I plug in at church, and then I go throughout my week, and hopefully there's enough, I was charged up enough to get through my terrible week so that maybe I can get back to church, plug back in, and recharge. That is not God's design. Um, yes, Sunday is a great moment of equipping. It's great to worship together. There is sort of a boost that we get being together. But the idea is that we take that, that we are connected to Christ here, but as we leave this place, that we remain connected as he sustains us moment by moment. Because all batteries die. Um, I think some electric vehicle owners learned that this week out in the greater Chicago area. Did you see the news on this? So um, they, there was, from a, this is from a news story, but there was motorists. They told the local news outlets that they had been stranded at charging stations in the cold with cars with dead batteries. While successful charging was taking far longer than usual, they also claimed that many of the charging stations were not functioning. Uh, quote, our batteries are so cold it's taking longer to charge now, said Brandon Wellborn, a Tesla owner in the Evergreen Park area of Chicago. He told the local news station, it, took, it should take 45 minutes, but it's taking two hours for the one charger we have. So what, what happens is cars are starting to line up at the charger, and then the, the person's taking forever at the charger, and everybody else's car dies because they have the heat on because it's so stinking cold. And um, so he said, he said, this guy said he had seen at least 10 cars being towed away after their battery died. This is crazy, quote, a disaster, Chalice Mazel, another Tesla owner, told the outlet, adding that she abandoned her car to ride with her friend after it failed to charge. Now, some of you own your electric cars, and that's fantastic, and it's great. I love the low emissions, and the technology is fantastic. But if you don't calculate in the kind of the cold, the bitter cold weather, you can get into some trouble. But my point here, I, so I have nothing against electric cars. I think they're great. My point is batteries die. And sometimes we don't realize how quickly that can happen. And if we look at our faith that way, how quickly it can happen to us. Rather, we should view ourselves not as a battery to be charged up, but as a branch vitally connected to the vine where we are constantly receiving the nourishment from God. God is our source. He's not a resource. God is not a resource that we plug into to get something out and then leave. But that God is, it's, a, it's this abiding source. If we see God as a resource, we'll seek to pull what we can from him. You go to God when you need something, when you're hurting, when you need a blessing, when you need healing, and you'll go and you'll do whatever you can to try to, to, try to extract that blessing. And, but this divine image destroys that way of approaching God. That we're with God all the time, and we are connected, and we are even in the highs and the lows. That He's there, uh, showing us His way, providing for us. And then when we see God as a resource, we don't have to. We don't have to do all this. We put away striving, and we focus on abiding. So if we're striving to get something from God, or trying to please God, or trying to control God, we put that all away. You look at a tree. A tree doesn't strive. A tree just grows because it's constantly being nourished. It's a constant source of water and nourishment from the soil. And uh, it produces fruit. And it grows strong. And that's the image of our relationship to God. And if we don't have this abiding relationship, we die. We wither and we die. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
And you know, when we disconnect, or when we start to disconnect from Christ, when we're not abiding in him, it doesn't always feel like we've just been cut off all at once. You feel the shock of that. It often feels like drifting, like something is slowly disconnecting. And we might notice it through anger or bitterness or bitterness towards a person or towards a church or a leader or something like that. But if we stay connected, those things, uh, it's a very durable connection when we abide in Jesus. And we need to be careful not to unplug because we can stay connected as the vine. So how do we do that? How do we abide? Let me give you four ways quickly here from the text that we, four things that we experience or four things that are part of our abiding. And the first is about uh, pruning, accepting God's pruning. So if we'll go back to verse two here, Jesus says, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. So he's speaking of the father. The father cuts off every branch that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So pruning is a process of cutting away that which is alive and actually is, uh, can seem to be good, and it seems almost unnatural or harmful, and it's, it can seem ugly or wasteful, but it's for a future growth. It's, it's, it's cutting back that which is alive so that what is behind will be even more fruitful. And you'll notice that it, God, the, 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 the good gardener in the image here, our Heavenly Father, doesn't just prune some of the good branches. It says every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. That everybody will experience pruning in their life. I, I, think, of, I think of my life and the times when I've been at my lowest or mistakes that I've made or my hardest points in my life and losses that I've experienced. And we look back and say, oh, God has actually used those things to, to shape me. That I see that God had a greater purpose for that, um, I look at in the scriptures and we read the story of Job or we read the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. And Joseph in the Old Testament was this man who had terrible losses in his life and he was betrayed by his family and he was a, sold as a slave. He was imprisoned. He was he, false accusations, all these things. And he gets to a point in his life where he's confronting his family and he said, you know, all these things that you intended to harm me, God used them for good. That God was actually part of all those tragedies of life, bringing him to a, a, to a place of good purposes. And he's able to see that. It's not always clear to us when you're going through that stuff that, it's, that God is actually doing something good or better, that God has something more beautiful on the other side of your loss, on the other side of your suffering, when God has pruned away a good hope that you had or a dream of your heart or God has cut away a, a good desire that feels good to you and it seems to be cut away. We don't, we don't know. And we can't Again, we can't claim God's pruning for someone else to say, oh, that terrible thing you're going through, God's going to use it for good. Because that's really harsh when people don't, can't see it. And maybe that's you today, that you can't, you're going through some pruning and you can't see what God is doing. I encourage you to stay connected, to remain in him, to see what beautiful thing he may have on the other side of it. Wrestle with God in that. Take heart in that. Seek the Lord in that, accepting his pruning. It's the first thing. Second thing is about meditation, specifically meditating on God's word. Verse 7 says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. So earlier he said, if you remain in me and I in you. Now it's remain in me and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. There's this, um, there's, there's 
good things that flow when God's word remains in us, when we uh, allow God's word to penetrate our lives. And really, I see this as Christian uh, meditation on scripture. It's a very biblical understanding. We read in the Old Testament, the Psalms and other places that we're to meditate on God's word day and night. This is different than reading the Bible. And again, it's January. I know some of you are trying to read through the Bible in a year. That's a wonderful thing to do. And you've got your reading plan all set up. That's great. And it's not just Bible study. Bible study also great. We should study God's word, understand what it means. But beyond reading and beyond study, we are to be people who meditate on God's word. Now, a lot of people in our world meditate and they get benefit from that, psychological benefit, health benefit. But Christian meditation is is actually different than other forms of meditation. Most forms of meditation is about emptying yourself and emptying your mind and just kind of letting everything go. In Christian meditation, it's about filling the mind, that I'm seeking to take God's word and let it go in and focus on that and fill me. And so we take a passage of scripture and we can just spend some time with it. Now, the way that I meditate on scripture, I learned from a, a, um, a 16th century monk named Ignatius. I didn't learn directly from Ignatius. <laughs> I didn't talk to the ghost of, the, of Ignatius. But, um, but I, from his, his works and his writings, this, a way of meditating on scripture, there's basically five steps. The first step is you just acknowledge that God is present with you. So before you try to meditate, say, okay, as I sit here, God is with me. Even as I breathe, I, I have a sense that God's providence is keeping me alive, that God is here. It's the first step. The second step is to not get freaked out by that and to know that freedom, that God's presence brings freedom. Because when you start to realize that God is near you and with you, we can feel very guilty, we can feel dirty, we can feel really inadequate. But we know that by God's grace that we can, he can be with us and he's extending his love and his grace to us continually. So the, so the presence of God, the freedom that that brings... And then consciousness, a prayer of consciousness, which means being conscious of what I'm bringing to the table. When I pray and meditate, I'm not always in a good mood, not always well-rested. I'm not always at peace. I might be distracted by things around me. I might um, just be worried about things. And I, you just start to name that stuff to the God because it's the real you that he knows and loves. And just, just, God, I'm coming to you angry or I'm coming to you cold today for whatever reason. And so as I consider God as present that he's good, that, he, uh, that you know, I'm bringing some stuff to the table. Then I read God's word slowly. Usually just a short passage. Read it a couple times and say, Lord, okay, what are you showing me here? What's standing out to me in your word? It just starts a conversation with God about his word to us. And then and that's it. Then I, we, I conclude it and say amen. And that's just how, that's just one way of meditating that was helpful for me. And there's... Um, Anyway, I could recommend books and uh, websites that help, uh, help Christian meditation like this. But it's meditating on God's word as remaining and letting that really go deep. If you do not have a practice of meditation on the Bible, I encourage you to pick that up. That's a new habit that uh, could be very, I believe, could be beneficial to you as you seek to abide in Christ. Third is prayer. So this is more, uh, you know, meditation is... is Similar to prayer, but prayer really just asking God. And we get these amazing promises, like right here in verse 7. You know, ask whatever you wish, it will be given for you. And then in verse 16, almost the same words there. It's um, that whatever you ask 
in my name, you know, the Father will give you. This is an astounding promise of Jesus. And last week we looked again, Jesus, Pastor Dan was preaching and talked about this, you know, how do we understand? You'll, anything you ask in my name, you will give me. So I agree with Pastor Dan 100% that when we talk about asking in the name of Jesus, we're talking about asking according to his will. That whatever we ask, as it is aligned to the, the will of God who is sovereign, then it, it, it will come to be. It's just, it, it's inevitable. And that it's just this amazing, as we are connected to his good purposes, we see these things happen. And I totally believe that. If we ask anything that's outside of God's will, it'll never happen. You're not going to ruin God's will by praying. So, of a sovereign God. But that does kind of beg the question, like, well, then why do I even ask? What's the point? Do I even need to pray at that point? Because actually, God, the reality is God doesn't need you. Sorry. God doesn't even need you to pray. And yet God has called us into a relationship with himself. He, is, he wants his children to pour out their heart to him. This is God's good design. And so I think of it like when my kids were little and they would ask me for ice cream. You know, and, and, and I was sovereign in that point because I had a wallet and I'm driving the car and they said, Dad, can we stop for ice cream? And sometimes they know that I could say no and they know that I could say yes. And so they asked. And there were times I took them for ice cream, they didn't even ask. Now, the analogy breaks down because even though I was sovereign, I was not holy. Um, I couldn't see the future. <laughs> Didn't always know the exact right moment for ice cream, although I think I'm pretty close you know, to knowing that. But I didn't always have you know, the, the purity that God has as we pray to him. But I just think of kids just saying, you know, we're children and we go before God and say, God, I'm just asking for this. And I know he could say no, and I know he could say yes, but there's something right about it. <laughs> something right about praying. And the more I walk with the Lord, the more I just don't care about the mystery that exists there. I believe God's sovereign. I believe I can't disrupt you know, his plan and his will. And yet I call out to him all the time. And I, and I pray with other people. And I lift all kinds of concerns to the Lord. And when I do that, I don't feel like I've done something wrong. And I don't feel like I missed out on something. I just feel like that's the right thing. And the more and more I pray, the more it just feels right, and those, the mystery just doesn't bother me, and we just walk. And these things used to bother me. I used to try to analyze prayer. You know, did I pray quite right? Did I use the right words? Am I asking for the right things? And now we just, I just pray. And so as we abide and we start to, we're so connected that we're just calling out to the Lord continually for the things that are on our heart, and trusting him and trusting his will and his way. And that's all part of abiding. The fourth thing here is, uh, so it's pruning, accepting the pruning, the meditation, prayer, and love. So verse 9 says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. So part of abiding is being connected to the love of Christ, which he goes on to say in verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. We We stay connected to the love of Christ as we love as he loved us. How did he love us? He loved us self-sacrificially. When he says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his friends, that's exactly what Jesus did when he laid down his life on the cross. And then we are called to that way of sacrificial love, not some sentimental, just be nice to people, but considering others better than yourself, willing to die, willing to sacrifice for another. 
And not only is it self-sacrificing love, but the love of Christ is a peacemaking love. It's a love that takes us from being an enemy of God to not only being not an enemy, but to being a friend of God. And we are... That God has made peace with us through the work of Jesus on the cross as the foundation of love. And we seek to live that kind of love. Therefore, and as Jesus said, he said, you know, it, the true measure of your love isn't how much you love your friends or love your brothers and sisters. It's like how much you love your enemy. And who do I view as my enemy in my life? You know, maybe it's a, a difficult person, uh, someone you've had a conflict with at work, a neighbor. Maybe it's the person you think is ruining our world or our nation. Maybe it's a political opponent or somebody who's just going to, you know, messing up the world. Whoever that is, how well do you love that person? And what that requires is to see their humanity, to see that this is a person created in the image of God, to love them, to love them, to, to, to understand their needs, to to understand that I'm a sinner, too, that the, my only hope is Jesus, that I am deeply broken and really my own human depravity gets in the way of me loving people, and yet God has reconciled me to himself, and I'm seeking to understand and reconcile even the one that I would consider to be the enemy. Jesus said, that's perfect love right there. Loving your enemy, praying to bless those who persecute you. Um, and, and again, we're just scratching the surface on that, but this is part of, as we are connected to Christ, we are connected to his love, and that love is then going to be lived out as we go. So God's pruning in our lives, meditation, prayer, and then love in action. And then what happens, the results of all this, is that we produce fruit. The vine grows. God's kingdom starts to grow in advance, but we always, to see this happen, we're always going to have to be fighting against what I call the sacred-secular divide. The sacred-secular divide basically says that God really cares about sacred, good, holy things, and there's a bunch of stuff that God doesn't really care about. As soon as we convince ourselves that, we're going to miss out on all this stuff. That God cares about all of it. That God is restoring all of creation to himself. So everywhere you go and everything you do, as you are constantly abiding in Christ, you're going to start to see your everyday, the, even the monotonous stuff as an opportunity to, for fruitfulness and for growth. Whether it's at your place of work or when you're taking a class that you don't like or when you're doing the chores of the house, that you can start to see that the reality of the, that abiding connection and the fruitfulness that can flow from that. And through that, we experience not just fruitfulness, but fellowship. Verse 15 says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know the master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. Everything I learned from my father, I've made known to you. Not only are you not an enemy of God, but you're also not a servant of God. You are a friend. You are a child in, in the household. And so we don't need to approach God, you know, um, like a servant, that I'm trying to serve God and trying to earn his favor and trying to do my best because we'll constantly fall short. But God said, no, 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 you're my friend, you're my child. I love you. And we, we can then, all the pressure is off. We are receiving his grace, receiving, experiencing his love, and then we can walk in that. So we are a friend of God. That's amazing. Is that song, can we sing that song? I am a friend of God. Not my favorite song. I am a friend of God. That one? It's, it's, it's not bad. It's just not my favorite, right? So we could sing it sometime. No, whatever. <laughs> but what it is, that is something worth singing about. To say, wait a minute. 
me, a broken human being, saved by the grace of God, being called a friend of God, and to experience that kind of fellowship and friendship with the God of the universe is just something that does make you want to sing. I am a friend of God. Okay, so now it's in my head. Now I'm going to have to listen to it. Joy. We also experience joy. Uh, verse 11. I've told you this, that my joy, my joy may be in you. Your joy will be complete. When you live this abiding life, the joy of the Lord is with you. Even in, and that doesn't mean everything's going great. That means even in the lowest point that we have hope, that we have joy, experiencing the presence of God. Joy, we spell it J-O-Y. J, Jesus first. O, others second. Y, yourself last. As opposed to a lifestyle of yo, which is yourself first, others last, and Jesus not even there. Joy, Jesus first, others second, yourself last. And we, we are connected and we experience this. But it's because Jesus, it's because of what he did. Jesus was, was chose to be cut off from the Father on the cross that we might remain and abide in the Father's love. The one who loved me, the one who gave himself for me, the God of the universe is my friend, and he's guiding me, sustaining me. He is my source as I abide in him. Let us pray. Father, uh, we, as we think of these familiar words, you've just shown us such a beautiful thing, that this is such a beautiful gift, that as we remain in you, that you indeed sustain us, that you guide us to that which is good and fruitful and beautiful. So, Lord, help us to... Um, understand and accept your pruning in our lives, Lord, trusting that you do have a greater plan, uh, even when it's hard, Lord. Help us to trust you in that. And so as individuals and as a church, I pray that we would remain and abide with you uh, for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.